been battling a little something something all weekend in my throat and my head and uh, it was this morning right before I left the house I took two different medications and um, plus some ibuprofen one one of the medications said it's going to make you drowsy and the other one said it's going to kind of hype you up and make you a little jazzy so um, I'm just going to let them duke it out and we'll see uh, we'll see kind of what happens there how that feels Several years ago, it's been a couple of administrations past, I guess, there was a story in the uh, Knoxville News Sentinel about our, who was then police chief, Phil Keith. Some of you remember him. He rotated off in, I think, 2004 or something like that. Uh, Still around, has been involved in law enforcement for a long time. But he was doing a televised city council meeting, and I've been to several of those, and uh, he was doing an interview, and he was answering questions from reporters and that sort of thing, and all of a sudden, his beeper went off, and he looked down at it, and it was his mother's phone number, and he thought, well, she wouldn't call me right in the middle of a press interview, so he steps off, and he calls her real quickly on his cell phone, says, Mom, what's up? And she said, Phil Keith, are you chewing gum? And he said, yes, ma'am, I am. She says, well, spit it out. It looks awful. I'm watching you on television. It just looks awful. So he did just what you or I would do. He spit it out and, uh, and went back on television. And uh, I just thought about, well, what else is he going to do? Some of you have mothers like that. Some of you are mothers like that. And you understand completely that that's just a very reasonable thing to do. Um, If you're a mom, one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons that God put you on earth is to teach your kids lessons that'll last them their whole life. Not just to correct behavior or to build into them a certain value system, although that's important, and morality and all of that, uh, and, and manners and courtesies and but these life lessons that will stay with them that they will be able to then in turn pass along. And I got to thinking about um, today's message and I've I've done several Christmas series. You know, God is always so faithful to bring to me a a thought that I haven't had before or haven't explored or developed uh, in a a fresh sense every year because sometimes around uh, October, November and I started thinking about Christmas and I said, Lord, I've preach so many Christmas <laughs> sermons and messages. Uh, what else is there to, to get out of this story? And the Lord says, Dan, you haven't even scratched the surface of everything that I can teach you and that I can teach others about that event and all the other events in Scripture. Um, Dr. Adrian Rogers was pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church once, and we got to have dinner one night, and, and I knew that he preached often, and he had been at that church for years and years. And I said, well, what do you do when you've preached everything, when you've just gone through the whole Bible and you've preached it all? And he said, I don't know. I'm not nearly. He said, I'm, I'm, I'll never do that. I'll just never get to that place. So when I was thinking about this story uh, today and, and this, uh, this event and looking at it through Mary's point of view, what did Jesus' mother teach him? That's what I want you to see today and to think about. We think about Mary uh, at the beginning of Jesus' life. 
and that she gave birth, and that's just an incredible story, and we're going to look at that in a little more detail today. And then we, we kind of fast forward, typically, to the end of Jesus' life, and there his mother is. You know, there are all those years in between, and that Mary knew Jesus in a unique way like nobody else knew Jesus. And she knew him as this baby that she held. She was closer to him on earth than anybody ever was or ever will be. She knew him as a toddler and as a child and as a teenager and then as an adult. He was always something different. Not just the Savior, but her boy, her son. Not just Almighty God, but this helpless baby and this child that she was responsible for. She's probably a teenager, probably a young teenager when she gave birth to Jesus. But she showed this wisdom and this maturity and this love that a lot of older people don't get. Some overestimate, I understand, the importance of Mary. And we have a disagreement about that and how she's been elevated sometimes. But I think sometimes we are a little on the other side of that, that we underestimate how important she was and how incredible uh, her life was and the importance of it. Jesus' mother was a model for Jesus. She was his mom, just like your mom was yours. And she taught him things and walked with him and helped him to grow in a way that no one else could in that particular role. And God does the same thing through ordinary people just like you and me. So here's the big idea of the message today. Mary's incredible trust in God as she declares herself the Lord's servant is the perfect model for us. It prefigures the trust that the Father has shown uh, by her child, Jesus, who emptied himself and he became a servant. So how do we apply that? What's our action point when we really begin to understand this truth? The application today is this, that we must put our faith in God like a child, just like a child has faith in his loving parent that we relate to the Lord in the same way. We can begin to do that or refresh that experience right now, today. Here's the text we're going to look at and the story behind that truth. It's in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The angel Gabriel is sent out by God to deliver this news uh, to Mary. Can you imagine how unexpected, uh, how altering this was for her entire uh, life? The word angel, angelos, literally means messenger or envoy, one who is sent to communicate a specific message. And you see this all throughout Scripture, both in the Old Covenant and in the New. Now, this event is really significant and important because it tells us something that's at the very heart of our Christian faith. Those of us who follow Jesus, it's at the heart of Christianity that we have good news. That it's good news. It's good news. The announcement of the gospel is that in Jesus, God is reconciling. He's restoring and redeeming the world to himself. That's good news. The specific content of Gabriel's message to Mary is really big. And I know you've heard the Christmas story uh, so many times that if we're not careful, it'll just kind of go past us, right? And I knew the Christmas story, even though I didn't grow up in church and I didn't have a Bible or any of those things, I knew this story. I absolutely knew all about this. We, we know this, but with familiarity, there's a little bit of a danger. So I want you to listen and look at this today as if you had never heard it before. This, this was just brand new information. Because this is, first of all, it's a, it's a massive theological claim. This was big news. In Luke one thirty two, it says, Jesus will be called great and will be called the Son of the Most High. You see that feeling, that overtone to it? And then in Luke one thirty five, it says, So the Holy One uh, to be born will be called the Son of God. The Son of God. This is brand new. God had never worked. He had never done anything like this or in this way before. This was so different. It was so deeply theological. The resolution to this mystery, you know, in, in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, there's this mystery of God and, and there's this, this role that Jesus plays. And, and now we began to understand as we see this emerge in a completely new light. How is it that God will bring about finally redemption and salvation for Israel and for the entire world? How will he do that? And in that day, the theologians and the scholars and just ordinary people, they thought about that and developed their own theories and ideas. And I'm sure they argued back and forth about it. And there were, there were different, you know, these, these veins and arteries of theological thought. And, 
and there were people who were separated just like we are today. And we think we've invented this through, um, through denominations and through all the different you know, influences and histories we have that we're kind of the ones who came up with all these different ideas and we wish it wasn't that way, but it kind of is. You know what, folks? It's always been like that. It's always been like that. I shared this a couple of nights ago uh, at Cafe that I had an opportunity uh, two weeks ago. I, I spoke in completely different environments when I was in Guatemala. But one of those um, was a luncheon for business people. And the folks that were invited, and I didn't know until just a couple of hours before the event that I was going to be the, the speaker for this, uh, but it was people who either owned businesses, had started businesses, or who were high up in this corporation, and they got them together, and, uh, and, and there we were, had a very nice meal, and, and, and then I spoke, and I talked about the fact of Christmas being such good news, such good news, and I said, we framed that, and we get used to that idea, and so we say that, right? Oh, it's great news. It's, it's glad tidings. But why would it, where did you move from? What was the point of reference to make that good news? Because in order for there to be good news, there had to have been some bad news going on. There had to be something that needed to be resolved, a problem or a situation. And here's the, here's, here's the idea. For Jesus to come was incredible and it was this beautiful, wonderful thing. But the fact that he had to come. Do you get it? That he had to come. There was no other way for us to be saved except through Jesus. It's almost as if God had tried everything and he had pulled out all of his reserves in every way he could think of to pull us out of our sin and the guilt and the death that the result, you know, that came from that and to, to place us in this right relationship with him. And the only way that he could do that was to come into our situation. He's not a sympathetic God. He's an empathetic God. So he came into our world. You can almost envision that, Jesus, there's no other way we're going to do this. You're going to have to go down there. You're going to have to become one of them to be able to communicate this message. And can you imagine in all of heaven and all of creation that this would have been a beautiful thing but a tragedy at the same time. The bad news is this is the only way we could be saved is for God to send his son Jesus into the world. And it's good news. And that's this mystery. That the Messiah would be. Not like people expected him to be. He would be the son. Of the most high. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw. That a virgin would give birth to. The son of God. This mysterious Messiah figure that we, we've read about and it's been prophesied about again and again and again in the Old Testament will actually be God in human flesh. That was unheard of. Nobody thought about the fact that God would become a man. The second thing I see about this is not only this this, you know, this, this massively theological thing that happened that just turned everything upside down. But the content of Gabriel's message was a huge political event. It was a claim that was different than the way the Jews thought it would be because all they could see is just kind of like the way we see things, just what's in front of us. 
Where are we politically? Where are we as a nation or as a world? And all we can kind of think about is what's around us in history at this moment. And that's kind of the way they thought even about Messiah. But this child that was promised to Mary would be a descendant of David, and he would sit on David's throne forever. Not just to end the oppression that they were facing at that time, not just to change the, you know, the structure politically and economically in the world that they knew. No, it says in Luke 1, 32 and 3, it says, no, his kingdom is not like that. His kingdom will never end. This was something different. It was beyond. It was bigger than what everybody was thinking about. This promised child, yes, would be a king. And that would even be mocked at the very end of his life. That would be nailed to the cross. Here's your king. Here's the king of the Jews. Nobody got it. Even that far away from his birth, they still were thinking in terms of political kingdoms like we associate with. I said, no, this child will be a king. Now, I know sometimes we tend to over-spiritualize things or even, you know, this message by making it just pertinent or, you know, relevant to people's religious lives where they are. But, but the gospel is intensely theological and it's political. Jesus is identified with God in a unique, brand new way, which people then and people now find it really hard to wrap our minds around and to grasp what it is we believe. Jesus is the true ruler of the world in a way that leaves Caesar and all the modern day leaders and everybody you think of in history and all the powers of the world a long, long way behind. He's so much bigger and above all of that and all of these structures and types of government and systems that we've come up with. Mary's response to this is really worth thinking about. She questions Gabriel's message in a, in a similar way that Zechariah did. You remember Zechariah? We talked about him a week or two ago and that he was this priest and that he knew all of the religious information and he's a temple priest, so he had this honor, and, and, but he's got questions. And now we have, remember, that Mary's just a teenage peasant girl. There is nothing about her or her life that should set her apart. I mean, she's so ordinary, so ordinary. But she doesn't remain doubtful. In the end, she says this. In, in verse 38, she says, as she's, she can't even comprehend it yet. This is still just sort of washing over her. Just like with Zechariah, you know, and, and he was moving in the direction of, I can't believe this. This is too big, and I've been counting on this my whole life. I've been waiting for it. I've been watching for it. I've been studying this uh, for years and years and years. And now when it's finally happening, no, nah, I don't think so. And the angel said, listen, I'm going to have to just make you be quiet. I'm going to have to close your mouth till all this happens because you're going to talk yourself out of this. With Mary, he didn't have to do that. Her next words were, I'm your servant. I am a servant of the Lord. If this is what God wants to do, this is what I'm going to do. And she makes this proclamation. She says, may your word be fulfilled in my life. Do you see the difference? Do you see how she's just leaning into what this angel tells her? 
I'm the Lord's servant. And I love this about her. Mary's faith in God is just unshakable. And even though she recognizes that this pregnancy is really unusual and has the potential to cause incredible shame, both for her, for Joseph, for her entire family, in that moment, in that place and time in history, this was going to change everything. But Mary trusts in this word of God. And I want you to, you know, to kind of think through the fact that this is without the benefit of knowing everything that God is going to accomplish in Christ, in her life, and in all of our lives. You see, we have this advantage of being able to look back on it and think, yeah, I would have done the same thing. Put yourself in Mary's place. She didn't know all that we know. She didn't have any of this part of Scripture. All she knew is what the angel told her. And this belief in her heart and this trust to the Lord. Her faithfulness, I think, is what kind of prefigures or just kind of sets up the faithfulness of Jesus. She's his mom. And this is one of the things she's going to bring to the table as she teaches him and as she raises the Messiah. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Paul, in Philippians 2, said he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Now, in part, where do you think Jesus got that? got it from his mom because she identified as a servant and that's what she taught her boy we had the advantage of knowing everything that Jesus has done on our behalf how much more should we trust in God than she was able to Mary teaches all of us that God is not as interested in your abilities as he is your availability. God sees your potential no matter who you are. And I, and I say this and I hope it just rings with authority in your heart from the Holy Spirit not just my words but God sees who you are and he can use you. In verse 26 and 27 scripture paints this picture of just an ordinary girl with some serious liabilities and I know you think about you know when you put yourself in in that place and when I say something like God can use you and God wants to use you and this next year may be the most powerful year of ministry you've ever had and there's immediately this feeling of doubt or you know you you look in this mirror of self-esteem and you think I don't know I don't see that I'm the guy I don't see that I'm the woman God could use you don't understand my situation there's all these things about me that's okay I get it look at Mary she was young she was really young and she's pledged to be married now at that time it was real customary for girls to get betrothed uh, which is like a super engagement, uh, when they were about 12 or 13 years old. 12 or 13. 
You don't even want your daughter dating, right, that, that 12, 12 or 13 years old. You, you think, wow, that's kind of young. It was likely that Mary would have been either as young as about 12 or 13 or as old as, I'm going to put a ceiling on it, it's just, just my thought, about 16. So she's somewhere between 13, 16 years old. And she sees an angel. <laughs> And you and I might think, that girl's too young. She just can't be used by God yet. She's too young. But apparently, God didn't think so. So those of you who are young and you're thinking, well, it's not our time yet. One day when we get grown, whatever, don't let that stop you. And that's the same if you're old, if you're young, if you're in between. God doesn't really care about your age. He's not looking at you chronologically. Not only was she young, but she was poor. Luke 2, and 24 says that when Joseph and Mary took baby Jesus to the temple to be circumcised, this would be just a little bit later, they were required to bring one of two offerings. You could either bring a lamb for a burnt offering and a dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. But if the lamb was too expensive, they just, it just cost too much, then the parents could just bring a second dove or a second pigeon because they were cheap. You could do that instead. And, and the, the Gospels tell us that Mary and Joseph brought two doves. And the reason they did that is they just couldn't afford the lamb. It just wasn't in the budget. So Joseph brought two doves because that's where they were financially at that time. And you and I might think, well, she was too young. And this family is just too poor to raise Jesus. Uh, God didn't think so. Because God doesn't look at you through the lens of your budget, of your income. He doesn't think about you economically. And you've got to just get that label and that barrier off before you think, well, God can't use me, I'm too young. God can't use me, I'm too old. God can't use me, I'm at this season in life, I'm at that season. Well, I don't think God can use me because I'm so broke. I mean, what is he going to do with me? I don't have the resources. He doesn't think about it in the same way, not at all. But it was a liability for Mary, right? So not only is she really young and she's poor, she's from Nazareth. And I don't want you to let that slip by. Nazareth was a town with a little bit of a bad reputation. They had gotten into some scuffles with the Roman government. They had had to bring troops down a couple of times to settle it, get things back in line and get people, you know, get it in order. It wasn't necessarily a bad place, but it wasn't a good place. And it was just off the map. It, was off. it wasn't on any of the main roads. It wasn't a town that was noted, you know, that you say, oh, he's from this place or that place, and immediately there's like a, just a little bit of bump in, you know, your stature, and you think, oh, you're from there, you know, and when you meet somebody, and maybe they're from London or they're from New York or they're from a, a larger town, and immediately they have a little bit of something, something because they're from a certain place. And the question is, is Mary's, they're from Nazareth? Where is Nazareth? And I tried to think of a town to say, this is like saying they're from, but then I was afraid it might be your town, uh, and then that you would be all offended, and you'd send me a, a mean email this week or, or come up after worship. But I, so I started to say, like, Kodak. You know, they're from Kodak, Tennessee. And it's not a bad place. It's just not on the map, right? 
or Saudi Daisy or Greenback, you know, and that Jesus will come from Greenback, Tennessee. And you think, what? Do you see the feeling of that? And I'm not dissing your town. I can tell I've upset some of you already. But that's kind of the idea here. Nazareth was just a town. And nobody thought Messiah. He's from Greenback, Tennessee. In John 1.46, Nathaniel said, just, just, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Not exactly. And my wife's from Coldwater, Mississippi. And as you drive into the town, there's a plaque of a guy who was a Rhodes Scholar, I guess back in the 60s. And that's, that's their claim to fame. There's no other signs because just not a lot goes on in Coldwater. It's not a bad place, but it's a Nazareth. So you and I might be thinking, no way. There's no telling what this girl grew up seeing and hearing in a place like that. Apparently, God didn't care. And he didn't take into consideration in choosing Mary to be the son, you know, the, the mother of the son of God, to, to be the one who would give birth to Messiah. He didn't care about any of those things. Mary was young, she's poor, and she's from Nazareth. All these characteristics made her seem, in some people's eyes, unusable by God. He had to pick somebody else. But no, God chose Mary for one of the most important jobs he would ever ask anybody to do. So let me ask you, what's your excuse? What's your excuse for not being used by God? You might think, I'm too young, I'm too old, I don't have enough money, I don't have the right talents, uh, I, I just don't think, I'm not from those places, I didn't go to the right schools, I don't even have that kind of education, I, I just don't think my background, you don't know my story, you don't know all my past mistakes, you don't know the things I've done and seen and been, or what's happened to me, all of that, or any of that, you could use and say, that's a liability, and I just think it's impossible for God to use me. Listen, don't limit God. It's not about you. It's not about you. He can and he will use you if you just trust him. Just trust him. Of all the queens and the princesses and the people of influence and notoriety and wealth, God could have chosen anybody, but he didn't. Mary was just a poor teenager from a little town. But God picked her because she had these characteristics, these two vital attributes that God was looking for then and he's still looking for now, humility and faith. If you will be humble and you will be faithful, God will do amazing, incredible things through you. You, your life, your life. And I think that through God's choice of Mary that he teaches us, no matter who you are, God can use you. God can use you. So do you believe that? 
Will you lean into that? Will you be available? Do you think you're too small, that you're too young, you're too poor, you're too weak? Whatever it is that you typically fill in that blank, God wants to use you. Mary's faith is, is very childlike, very innocent, and I love that. And children have this incredible capacity for trust. From the moment they're able to communicate, you know, just even through smiles and cries, and however, you know, they show us that they just trust us without reservation. They, they just trust. Think of a toddler who's encouraged to jump into the arms of their father, and they do it. When I learned to swim, it was in uh, Pickwick. It was at Lake Pickwick. And my dad and my uncle would stand very close to each other, and I was between them. And I would get from one to the other. And then they would take a step back. And they're in water about this deep, which was over my head. Um, I think I was like two years old. I was very advanced for a child. And, but they would step back, and then they, I would swim. And that distance just kept getting further and further apart. And to a child, you think, oh, my goodness, I could go this far, but I don't know if I can go that far. And eventually, it's like the width of this, this platform. And I'm swimming back and forth. But each time, I would look into the face of my uncle or my dad, and I'm swimming to them, and I'm trusting them. And I can remember to this day him saying, we're not going to let anything happen to you. We're not going to let anything happen to you. There's that trust that's just built in and just wired into us. And then the word of God comes to us and it asks us, just be like children. Just be like that again. Stop being so cynical. Stop overthinking it and overanalyzing everything. Just trust the Heavenly Father in the same way that Mary did. Just trust him. And as you begin to read and to sift through the Bible, you see that God always makes good on his promises and that he's worthy of your faith. You can trust him. You can trust him. The angel in verse 30 says, don't be afraid. Stop being so scared. Stop living your life so afraid of everything. And I wouldn't blame Mary if she was afraid. If I were 14 years old, and I was poor, and I was a girl, and I was from a town like Nazareth. And an angel appeared to me and said, put a baby in your womb. It's going to be, I said, what? You know, I would be scared. Mary just goes with it. There's a lot of fear that could be attached to this pregnancy. There is the idea that she could be publicly divorced by Joseph. It would have been awful. It would have been a scandal. Joseph at first assumes that Mary's been unfaithful to him. What else is he supposed to think? What else would he think? And he decides, I'm going to be gracious and I am going to divorce her, but I'm going to put her away as quietly as possible. Uh, this is according to the law. This is what's necessary to end the engagement. Um, and then before he does so, he's told in a dream that Mary's baby was in fact conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph believes it. But right now, Mary doesn't know all that. She doesn't see how it's going to work out. Some of you, you're in a situation and you can't understand. You can't see. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't see a good ending to this. That was their situation. That's where they were. But Mary believes God's with me. No matter how this works out, whatever Joseph does, that's on him. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. So there's this possible divorce. There is a strong possibility of rejection by her family. Did Mary's family 
believe her story? Would you believe her story? That the baby growing up inside of her, it's God's son. It's a miracle. I conceived that when nobody's ever done this before, Mary, I know. And, and I'm a little shaky about it myself, but that's the story and that's the truth. What would you believe as parents? We were in Romania once in a little village called Hori, I think is the, the, if I remember correctly, and there was a, a young lady, she was uh, an older teenager, and she had received Christ as her Savior. And she left, and she had thought about, you know, we were going to have a baptismal service. She decided, I want to be baptized. Well, she showed back up later in the week, and there was a truck and had everything she owned in the back of it. Because she said, my parents are orthodox, and my dad told me, if you do this, you can believe what you want to believe and just quietly go that way, but if you get baptized, that's a declaration. You have drawn a line in the sand, and then you're no longer my daughter. You're no longer in this house. You no longer have a home with us. They rejected her. Another Christian evangelical family took her in. Uh, but she made that decision. And I remember just thinking how brave that was. How much courage that took for her. I remember when I came home and told my family that I had found Jesus. And I wanted to live a life for Jesus. And they just looked at me. And I remember the words that somebody in my family said, you fine, you do that, and we'll see how far you get. And there was just not a lot of encouragement there, but my friends just surrounded me and walked me through that. Mary would have gone through this rejection by the people she loved most in the world. What would you do? What would you believe if your daughter told you a story like that? It's real possible they just didn't, they just weren't buying it. But Mary said, I'm going to believe God's with me no matter how my parents respond. And they were certain, that's possible rejection. There was certain rejection by her community. You can just imagine the gossip that would have been swirling and circulating around Nazareth. The people of Nazareth would have accused her of adultery, a sin that was not taken very lightly. Uh, it was, she would have been shunned by people who once were her friends and that she had grown up in this village, in this town with, and but Mary believes, even if they reject me, I think, I just know God's with me. And I'm, I'm not, if my friends abandon me, that's their choice. I'm staying with the Lord. Do you know that this even technically, by the law, it carried with it the penalty, the punishment of stoning by death. Now, it had become pretty rare by this point in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was fairly common. But they could lawfully have stoned her to death. That was the penalty for adultery. So that had to have been in the back of her mind. The message from the angel totally changed everything about Mary's life. All of her hopes, her dreams, her plans, everything shifted that day. She was getting ready to be married and to have a normal life, a happy, beautiful life. But now her life's going to be anything but normal. How could she be so calm and courageous as she faced all of the problems that this pregnancy is going to cause? But she did. 
she would cling to the words that this angel spoke to her in verse 28. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. The Lord would be with her. He would help her. He would give her the strength and the courage to face anything, whatever's going to happen next. And that same Lord makes that same promise to you and to me. Psalm 118 verse 6 says this, The Lord is on my side. Who will I fear? What can man do to me? In the New Testament, in Hebrews 13, 5, it said, For he himself has said, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. So Mary's story teaches us that no matter what the problems you face, no matter what's going on, the Lord's with you. Mary faced the possibility of rejection from Joseph, from her family, her community, even the possibility of being stoned to death. But she knew and she trusted. The Lord said he would never abandon me. And she held on to that. I don't know how different this Christmas may be for you this year or how much the same it's going to be. But however that looks for you, I want you to know and to remember that the Lord is with you. He will not abandon you. He longs to redeem and to use your life. I don't know what's happened to you this year. I know that some of you have lost someone you love this year through some circumstance. Maybe through a divorce, maybe through death, maybe through a circumstance, a breakup. Maybe there's a friendship that's gone in different directions. And this Christmas is going to be a little different because there's going to to be an empty place where there was somebody before. I know that maybe there's a a crisis that's come. Maybe there's a hurt or a pain. Maybe there's a struggle you've had. It could have been with an addiction. It could have been with an illness. It could be financially. It could be with your job or in a relationship. I don't know. What's different about this Christmas than maybe last year or all the Christmases before? This is the message the Holy Spirit has given me to you. God is with you. He sees you. He knows. He cares. And he will not ever
We're going to have a moment right now. And maybe you just need to refresh that trust and to say, Lord, this isn't the Christmas I would have chosen, or maybe it is. Either way, we you trust the Lord with it? And go forward in trust and in confidence that God's with you in the exact same way he was with Mary. And I'm going to invite you, if you want to pray, God, I'm giving you my heart today. I've never trusted you for anything. And this will be your first Christmas to trust the Lord. I remember my Christmases before Jesus, and I know them now with him. With him's better. He's not just a baby in a manger. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. You could trust him today for the first time. Or maybe you would think, you know, I have trusted him, and I know that he's in my life. I know he's in me. But there's this one area I've been so doubtful, I've just held on to, and I've worried about so much. And today you just release that area, that place in your heart to the Lord, and say, God, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you with it. Or maybe you in a place where you think, I want to be used by the Lord, but I just don't think I'm that guy. I don't think I'm, I'm the woman that God would use. I, today, I want you just to give your life fresh and new to God and say, God, if you want to use me, you know my situation, you know my personality, you know my past. But I place myself before you just like Mary and say, I'm the Lord's servant. And I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. Take that step, that commitment. Let's stand right now together. If you want to pray alone, you can absolutely do that. If you want some folks to pray with you and over you, that's what we're here for. We're family. We're church. We'll pray each other uh, forward into the future together. In Jesus' name.